Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 21st, 2021. Talking to you, as always, from San Francisco, the heart of Silicon Valley, or at least on the edge of the heart of Silicon Valley. Uh, strange times for tech. Um, it's hard to tell whether we're living in a golden age or a bubble. Uh, Bitcoin, of course, dropped dramatically. The cryptocurrency revolution seems to be in free fall. Uh, some of the companies are revealed probably to be criminal frauds. Uh, Terraform Labs, for example, in Korea is such a fraud that all the employees now aren't able to leave Korea. Uh, $40 billion uh, have been lost, and one wonders where and how. Uh, meanwhile, some of big tech's biggest backers, like Peter Thiel apparently now, have turned on it. The politics of big tech is complicated. Apple store workers in Maryland have apparently won the vote to form the company's first U.S. union, old-fashioned unions in a in a, in a futuristic industry. That clash has been ongoing for a while. Meanwhile, the technology continues to be increasingly sophisticated. One headline last week was about a Google engineer who thinks that the company's artificial intelligence has come to life, whether or not that's true. Um, perhaps a According at least to John Thornhill, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago from the FT, we shouldn't be worrying about uh, AI sentience. We're more worried about what exactly these machines are doing. And of course, the men by, behind the machines are quite creepy too. Elon Musk has been in the news a lot. He's in the headlines again because of his association with Starlink, uh, um, uh, a high-tech futuristic networking technology. Um, which might be a little bit too close to the Chinese. Um, this all brings to mind the work of a, of a great tech um, historian, Carlotta Perez. She's never been on the show, but I've talked to her in some detail before. She wrote an important book called Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, The Dynamics of Bubbles and Golden Ages. And she's always argued that it's always been at a time of bubbles that the great infrastructure is being built. One man who's done a lot of thinking about um, bubbles and golden ages is my guest today, Azim Azai. He was on the show last year uh, in September 2021, talking about technology and the exponential gap. Um, and, uh, of course, he is also the author of The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. Note that the subtitle doesn't talk about accelerating business, politics, and society. It's more about transformation. And I'm thrilled that um, Azim is joining us from North London, from Golders Green, my old stomping ground, Azim. It's Carletta Perez, right? I'm sure you're familiar with her work. Um, how easy is it for futurists like yourself, serious futurists, not bubble-like futurists, to separate the wheat from the shaft, to separate the frauds, the scams, the hot air from stuff that really is profoundly changing the world? 
Well, it's a great question. It's great to be back. And Golders Green still misses you, uh, Andrew. Uh, I still miss I it. <laughs> so, you know, we have you have to go off and talk to lots of people to try to figure out what is what is going on because you you never really know a priori whether there is something that is is real or something that is uh, is suspicious, and that's particularly the case I think with what happened within crypto because in crypto. You have a technology that is really promising uh, and quite serious people recognize that it's promising and also has real limitations. And those serious people are in from computer science, they're from the world of banking. But at, at the same time, what happened with crypto is lots and lots of money fl flowed in very, very rapidly. And that is often quite a, creates quite a pungent cocktail uh, because you start to lose track of what's really going on. Uh, you know, underneath uh, in, in the core technologies. So what, what I try to do, and I get it right sometimes, I get it wrong quite often, is to really look at the underlying dynamics, less of user uptake or how people are, are taking up particular technology, but rather what's happening to the underlying costs of the technology. Because what we know about technologies is that when they get cheap, they become more ubiquitous. When they become more ubiquitous, more businesses do interesting things with them. And then we find ourselves 30 years after the internet revolution started with a new category of job that is called the Instagram influencer. And you could never have predicted that in 1992, but it exists today. It may not be a good thing, but it's there as a sort of legitimate occupation, legitimate industry. And the key insight, I think, is do we have something whose costs can meaningfully decline independent of all the hoopla and the, the, the circus uh, of communication and PR that, that runs around it? Well, coming back, though, to crypto, some countries have invested massively in it. El Salvador, for example, they've lost huge amounts of money. Where, in your view, is the value, not just of crypto, but of Web3 generally, um, Azim? Uh, since we've talked, Web3, the concept has taken off. We've had a number of shows about it. Some people argue it's for real. Other, others aren't sure exactly what it even means. Um, do you believe that we're still in what historians of tech call the Web 2.0 period? Or is something different happening with uh, technologies like crypto, and with uh, organizational architectures like DAOs, uh, decentralized mm -hmm. autonomous organizations, are these all just utopian techno pipe dreams, or are they? Is there something real there? Well, uh, all of that is happening. Both things that are real and and pipe dreams. Uh, and I recently heard the founder of a of a Web three. Uh, a business start his talk saying, you know, the nation state was the worst thing that had happened to humanity in the past hundred years. And and that's sort of historically wrong. And it's such an extreme claim. You really need to be able yeah, to- Yeah, and it's wrong on so many that. levels because it happened so, 300 years ago. So. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's so wrong. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, 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 but I do think there is something that is, that is interesting in um, in two areas. One is what happens when you can start to program money uh, and you, you can start to think a little bit about money as a digital object that can be, in some sense, smarter than, than traditional money. 
and that's I think where a lot of the central banks are looking. They've been talking about introducing digital currencies that, that are controlled by, by by central banks that might have more transparency and greater degrees of trust around them. But the, the other side is to this point, this idea of organizational design. Can you get, uh, can you establish trust in certain types of areas of cooperation where it's really hard to get the parties to trust each other? And that has been really the big mission of Web3 and crypto. This idea that, you know, you don't need a, a you know, a, a leviathan, an all-seeing power who enforces the rules. Uh, you can actually, as we can as a group, sort of almost form our society according to these rules that we embed in these these crypto tokens, and and they can they they can at, through that emerge with some sort of collective uh, direction. Now there are very few examples of that working really really well uh, right now, but the theory uh, exists uh, that that you can you have an, what a friend of mine calls the architecture of trust and um, i think no, one but, of the but, problems... but, Azim, yeah. this is an important issue i mean one of the founders i think of ethereum uh, wood and a british guy actually yeah. Yeah. suggested that blockchain currency bitcoin ethereum would replace trust with truth um, it's a it's it's an incredibly utopian and rather odd thing to say is there anything in that uh, you know, I think that Gavin Wood founder of Ethereum. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I, I spoke to him many years ago, uh, over 25 years ago, when he was a virtual reality researcher at uh, what was then called Hewlett Packard, I believe. Uh, and, you know, I haven't spoken to him uh, since, since then. I think some of those claims are that they're quite extreme. That uh, they're not normally the claims that a software developer or a computer scientist would come up. They would come up with. They would be the realm of the far-thinking futurist, like a uh, you know an Alvin Toffler or or an Arthur C. Clarke. And even then, they would be, you know, they'd be bounded by some sense uh, that, where you you are sort of containing what that claim is. It just seems like it is. It's too strong. It's too ideological, and it doesn't reflect the reality that. If you come out with something like uh, something in Web3 that is a little bit more participative, that does allow us to be uh, participants, not just consumers, that that actually creates a reformist pressure on our interactions in the world where we are simply consumers. In other words, what that does is it starts to say to our, our local uh, city council or the company that we buy our uh, internet service from, well, maybe we do want to bring our users into this, uh, in, into the activities, the daily activities, because they're demonstrating to us on Web3 they want to do that. And I think that some of these, these strong pronouncements, uh, which are slightly prophetic, they are uh, slightly religious, tend to ignore the dynamism of the other organizations. So do I think we can, we can build organizations with this sort of grassroots trust sort of libertarian collaboration um modality yeah i'm sure we can but they will coexist with other systems and those other systems will also respond to to these new forms of organization azim let's remind not everyone would have read your book or heard our first show 
your book, The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics and Society. The key word, of course, is exponential. You have a, an extremely popular, successful newsletter, Exponential Age. When you look at images of exponential growth, it's going up. It's not hard to What's imagine the hockey okay. stick going up. Well, what does that exponential mean? And why have you chosen this word to define your writing, indeed your brand? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, exponential it means that the, the, the quality uh, the, or the performance uh, or the speed of a particular technology uh, is, is increasing very, very rapidly. Uh, it's a bit like compound interest, uh, compound interest at 10% uh, rates we could only dream of and we only unfortunately get in uh, in inflation these days, uh, means that that while the initial growth is rather slow, as you see in the green line here, at some point, when your savings turn to $1,000, the next year you get 1100 and the year after that, you it goes up by 110 and the year after that, by even more than that. And that's exponential as opposed to linear. And a lot of the things that we have dealt with in, in the world up until the 1980s, 1990s, uh, were linear processes. The, the um, improvement in, in motor vehicles, the size of your TV screen. But we started to see technologies uh, like the computer, which were improving at exponential rates. And when I started to do the research, I started to realize that it wasn't just computing. It was also some other areas of the world, like um, uh, the, the, the ease with which we could sequence a genome, the cost of solar panels that were all improving uh, exponentially. And I started to dig into this and I realized more and more that there were certain characteristics of these really important technologies that, that were all similar. They were getting much, much better, much, much faster. And the way to then think about that the other way around is that they were effectively getting much cheaper. So when we say, oh, uh, it's got exponentially cheaper to sequence a human genome, uh, which is a really important part of modern medicine, what we mean is that the first human genome we sequenced, which was back in about 2001, cost about a billion dollars to sequence. And as of June 2022, some companies are saying we can sequence a full human genome for a hundred bucks. Um, and that's an exponential improvement. And it's, you know, it's reflected in that price having declined by a factor of 10 million. Um, and the same thing's happening, as I said, in perhaps not as great a degree in things like you know, renewable battery storage or wind power uh, or 3D printing uh, or the performance of AI systems. And, and all of those things happening about the same time you know, I, I bundled them and I said, listen, this looks like it's a transition to, uh, you know, a new industrial uh, structure, which I call the exponential age. Doesn't it, though, depend, um, Azim, on how it's applied? We had Vivek Wadwar on the show. I'm sure you're another uh, yeah. Silicon Valley based futurist. He's become quite a he used to be a friend of Elon Musk. He's become quite a critic. He, he said mm. very publicly on my show. Stop wasting your billions on Twitter and invest them in curing cancer. He's dedicating his life to curing cancer. Now his wife died of cancer tragically a couple of years ago. So the exponential age is not inevitable. There's still um, agency, human agency involved. It depends on whether or not Elon Musk, for example, puts his tens of billions of dollars into buying a social media platform or investing as 
Vivek would think, uh, would argue, in, 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 in finding a cure for cancer. Is that fair? Or is there something inevitable about the, in, in the long term, in structural terms, is there something inevitable about the exponential age, independent of how Elon Musk behaved? Uh, I think that I'm always a bit nervous about words like uh, inevitability. So I, I'm, I'm going to not use it. But what I'm going to say is when you dig into why do certain technologies get uh, get cheaper and cheaper uh, and why have computers got so much cheaper over time uh, and yet cars have not, uh, it, it comes down to um, what I think is a really intimately human process. Uh, it's what, what I call the consider the pandemic sourdough bread uh, effect. Uh, so at the start of the pandemic, I think a number of people, I was one of them, started to uh, say, well, I'm going to be stuck at home because of lockdowns. I'll bake bread. Uh, and the first loaf of bread I baked took me ages and ages. I wasted lots of flour and butter, and it didn't taste very good. And the second time I did it, I wasted less. And by the time I'd made my eighth loaf of bread, I wasn't quite professional, but I was much, much more efficient. And it was much essentially cheaper in terms of my labor cost and in terms of the amount of wastage and amount of mess to produce actually a higher quality of bread. What happened was I learned. And what we discover with certain types of technologies is that there is this learning experience from, from doing, and that is what drives their costs down. And so the reason that uh, solar is on an exponential trend or silicon chips are on an exponential trend is because these learning effects um, are extremely pronounced. Why does that happen? It happens to the extent that people are willing to learn they're able to learn and they have the incentive to learn. And that incentive might just be that, you know what, we'll get out of work earlier if we do this more efficiently, or we'll make more profit if we waste less material or if we can somehow drive the costs down. So, I, I mean, I think that if those things are true, you are likely to see, perhaps not as strong as an inevitability, but a really strong force towards driving the cost of these core technologies down. Let's go back to this issue of bubbles and golden ages or this sort of parallel, this, this rather surreal world of a parallel golden age and a, and a dark age. Um, your book, uh, The Exponential Age, talks about how accelerating technology is transforming business politics and society. And as I said earlier, it's curious that you use the word transforming because you're not saying advancing or accelerating. When you think about politics, for example, we seem to be living whilst tech, you're right, of course, about new tech, solar, AI, crypto, all these Web3 technologies. They're all for real and they're all very exciting. And yet politics seems stuck uh, in the United States, for example, uh, Joe Biden, it's becoming increasingly clear uh, that he's an extremely old man and stumbling around in his presidency. Uh, Mike Pence said today that no, he's never seen a president lie as much as Biden. He must have a short-term memory because I think Trump lied as much as him. But certainly our politics seems stuck with old men, mm -hmm. rather rather um, uh, backward-looking men, uh, men who are anything but exponential. Is there a connection, Azim, between the way in which politics, particularly in the West, seems stuck and all this remarkable new technology, or is that just coincidental that in the age of Joe Biden and Joe Trump uh, and, and, and Donald Trump, we also have AI and solar and crypto? 
Well, I, I think it, it's um, it's not coincidental. Uh, I, I think that we had a degree of momentum around the uh, previous, not just our political institutions, which is often my my focus, but the uh, the the sort of practical powers of politics, the the parties, and um, who had didn't didn't have any incentive or foresight to intervene early when the world started to change as a result of these technologies and um, and what you know what what one example of the world starting to change as a result of the technologies is um that you know you move from three to four news channels uh, which was certainly the case before you know cable tv was really popular in the us and certainly was the case in in, in the uk to many 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 different uh uh, sources of news from radio through to TV, through ultimately uh, the the internet, and yet we've always established that within societies that flow of information and participation is really really important, and we've had rules about how it needs to be be regulated or mediated in some way. And, and you know we can be we can be free of our judgment about what those rules are but we certainly know that every society from dictatorships and autocracies through to democracies have always thought a little bit about that particular nature of the communication and media space but we didn't do anything about it um, and you know I, I sort of argue in the book that we don't we didn't do anything about it you know largely because for, we didn't people didn't see how rapidly this this change could occur but I think there's a second layer to this which was that it served vested interests at, at the time um, and and I always think back to the, uh, the the period that this these technologies were first emerging which is the late 60s and early 70s was also the period at which um, the height of the libertarian project that really I suppose in some sense started with with John Locke um, was getting to its recent um, zenith, uh, nadir, however you consider it, which was 1970, 71, 72, this notion that we should absolutely roll back the state and we really, really needed to double down on businesses' ability to do business, you know, Milton Friedman being the person who, who anchors that. And so just at the time that you had these radical technologies becoming significant enough to really unsettle the way in which we lived our daily lives, we also had a really strong and well-argued doctrine that governments should step away from businesses being able to do business. And, and I think that that's a bit, of, an, uh, that's a bit un of unfortunate timing, but it also explains why when we get to 2015, 2016, 2017, governments' capacity to do anything about this, but also governments' belief in itself to do anything about this was at at a low, unfortunately at a time when the chaotic influence uh, of these technologies was getting into its ascendancy. Yeah, and I, and I think we're on the same page there, Azim, in terms of this end of the neo, what you know, you're describing, the end of the neoliberal age. The question is, what follows it? I, I, I wrote a piece last week about a future dominated by people like Steve Bannon, uh, a future of violence. What in your view, could be the role of violence, uh, particularly in the United States, a heavily armed society in our exponential age, just as um, uh, technology is transforming business, politics and society, how might it transform domestic violence? Some people believe America's 
on the verge of civil war. The, the gun culture here, of course, was not a creation of Silicon Valley, although that seems to have in some ways um, compounded it, inflamed it, and it's certainly bound mm -hmm. up in the, in the libertarian culture of Silicon Valley. Could our exponential age be one in which we return to, you mentioned John Locke, go back to Thomas Hobbes, a, a world of all against all, a post-state age of, of extreme violence. The tech might be sophisticated, but we're returning to our most primitive behavior in terms of violence. I, um, I'm not a sufficient expert on on the US, uh, I, you know, but the, the notion of polarization in the US is one that obviously has been around for a, a really, really long time. And I think the internal contradictions in, uh, in, in liberal democracy, which is that every, uh, every disagreement can be solved through, through discussion, uh, we are now starting to in a sense, kind of come home to roost, right? We're discovering that there are differences, whether they're real, whether they're manifest, whether they are stoked up by uh, vested interests, there seem to be differences, even in a country as rich and well-educated as the US that can't be resolved through through discussion. But, but, so, but, but I, I honestly, Andrew, don't, don't know the US well enough, but I think what we can see is um, that there, there has been a growth, perhaps not of necessarily of violence, although one of the examples I'll give is violence, but certainly a growth of, of friction, uh, a growth of, of conflict that's perhaps a little bit below the radar. Um, you can look at what's happening in uh, Ukraine, partly through that lens. I mean, there are many other lenses, right? Russia's desire to be an empire, Russia's... Yeah, uh, you wrote you know, an interesting piece about this, Azim, um, the Russian right. hierarchy versus the Ukrainian network, um, which yes. actually conforms with the theories of Niall Ferguson, who's been on the show before. Perhaps you might mention this as a, you know, it's quite literally a war, a war over the future, a war between hierarchy and network uh, in, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Well, I mean, if you look at Russia, I mean, Russia is, uh, is the, the, the leaders are all old. They're in their late 60s and 70s. Um, the economy is old. It's an extractive uh, economy. It doesn't create uh, intangible uh, research, patents, uh, software in any great degree. Uh, and yet, if you look at Ukraine, uh, yes, Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world, but Zelensky and his leaders uh, are all meme kiddies. You know, they're in their early 40s and they're, they're all younger. They're really good at social. They're really good at communication. And the way that the Ukrainians have responded has been to take advantage not so much of, not exclusively of industrial age structures, command and control, although there is some of that, but this idea of the network, they've activated networks of support. They've overlaid networks of uh, of, of data across their both their, their their sort of civil logistics, but also their military. Um, they've designed what someone described as the Uber routing algorithm for counter battery fire. So the Ukrainians now, courtesy of uh, satellite data from publicly available satellite feeds and normal laptops and so on, can spot and identify where Russian fire is coming from and send a salvo back within a matter of minutes. Whereas in many Western nations, that process is now, now taking close to an hour 
because of all the steps that have been put in, in, in place. So I think there's something quite interesting about the resilience that the Ukrainians have shown, which, which blends, of course, yes, blood and the sort of feral battle uh, of, of, of steel against explosive with this sort of network approach, which that you've seen them definitely succeed in their communications, their social media, their information operations. But, but I think also just being able to survive a massive um, imbalance in, in military material. And, and I think that tells us that tells us something. I mean, it does tell us that, you know, when you hear someone from the blockchain saying this will replace nation states and we're going to go back to city states all around their own coins, that's a little bit like saying uh, cyber warfare and social media memes will replace tanks on the battlefield. And what we've realized is that, that they won't, right? You know, but there are cir circumstances where the only thing you need is a tank, but it does help over a campaign to have the social media right as well. And, and, and I think that's some of the, I, I guess, the, the nuance and the, the pragmatism that we need to bring when we look at these new technologies and these moments of inflection. Well, that's why we have you on the show, Azim. You are um, unusually nuanced thinker, neither for nor against technology. Your your book, The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics and Society is still an essential read. Your, your, your newsletter is enormously valuable too. I would recommend people uh, sign up immediately. What else are you reading these days, uh, Azim, in addition um, to your newsletter and your book? What else would you suggest? I, I uh, well, I've just finished um, a couple of weeks ago uh, a book by a woman called Leia Ippi uh, called Free. Yeah, Leia was on the show. Excellent oh, book. She was on the show. Brilliant. But you might brilliant, mention brilliant it. Book. Go on. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I, mean, I think the, the, the key thing about, uh, about her story is that, that you know, she's 11 when Albania, which is sort of the, the last Maoist country uh, in the world, even China wasn't Maoist by then. Uh, sort of collapses and 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 starts this chaotic turn to um, to democracy, and she tells this very very personal story uh, of of what she experienced. It some of it's really really heart wrenching um, as well. One of the things that struck me about and this is about, called Free. This book it's by Leah yeah. Upi YPI. Yeah, YPI, and and she. Uh, she has a Coke can uh, on the cover of the book, and the Coke can has real uh, emotive uh, significance when you uh, when you when you read the book. But but I think it's it was a really important uh, dose of reality that that you know that when we sit in our current circumstance and people are often complaining uh, about uh, our current politics, and you read what life was like in Albania, or you see how hard Ukrainians are fighting, or you start to look at what life is like in, in, in Russia outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, you start to, I think it really reinforces that there is something that is worth fighting for in societies that are that are free and free of thinking. And, and I do think that uh, I've, been, I've been thinking quite hard about the whole China uh, rise uh, relative to to the you know the, the West, um, and and I, I've been thinking about that, and I'm starting to come to a conclusion that perhaps I didn't have six months ago or a year ago, uh, which is that 
yes, China is really serious about some of these technologies that it's investing in, you know, the quantum computing and the AI and the drones. Um, however, research is, it's an activity of freedom. You need the space to be able to explore anywhere uh, as a researcher. There can't be topics that are taboo, like you know, Winnie the Pooh, which I understand is taboo on Chinese social media uh, because he's meant to look a little bit like the premier or, or vice versa. Uh, and, and this idea that you could be a researcher in investigating any question, and yet there are certain things which could get, lent, get you into serious trouble, but you don't know what those things are, I think can actually only hinder the, the research process. And that came across in, in free, right? There were so many things Albanians were simply not allowed to think about. And given that, how could they possibly develop new ideas, develop science, develop strategic technologies? And, and that is something that I, I think should structurally advantage the West, because we generally do allow people to think freely, except, of course, as we know, in the recent years, uh, there has been a, a growing uh, constraint on academic freedom in uh, across universities, certainly in the UK, but also, and of course, in the US. And, and I think, well, that's really one of our advantages as societies, right? It's a strategic advantage over closed societies, especially at moments of transition, where no one knows what the answer is, right? You need smart people to go out and think very freely. And that's our big advantage. And we seem to be willing to say for, you know, for better or worse reasons, we're going to we're going to clamp down on that, and I think that's something that we need to go off and address and say we really want to look more like the way we we did perhaps thirty or forty years ago or twenty years ago in terms of academic freedom than we do now.